We're starting again a new, ser- a new series today called Seven Marks of, the, of a Beautiful Church. Uh, if you, you know, there's all kinds of different formulations that are similar to that. In theology, we talk about the three marks uh, of the church, three marks of the true church, which we talked about a bit today in our Sunday school class. There's another whole organization that talks about nine marks of a healthy church. Um, there's, a, there's, a bunch, it's, 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 there's a bunch of things like that out there. And I was thinking, I thought, wouldn't it be great if we could have a class, or have a, not a class, but have a sermon series that talked about like the foundations for discipleship, how we've organized our church around what it means to be a disciple in Christ and how we particularly try to go about that and the scriptures that are all behind that. But then to go on from there and talk about what in our ministry, in our place, in our time where God has placed us in the world, what are the things that we need to emphasize that are really important for us to make the gospel known to uh, the people that God has called us to minister to? And so the first three are going to be that core, those core elements of discipleship. Worship today, next week will be spiritual formation, uh, how we do that, what, what that means, and then... And then um, Third week will be mission in the world. And then after that, in February, we'll do four classes on kind of some of the things that we emphasize as a church. Practicing a beautiful orthodoxy, meaning that it's not just what we say, but it also has a whole lot to do with how we say it and how we present ourselves to the world. Um, You can speak truth in a very ugly and hateful manner, and we don't want to do that. Uh, Also... uh, And then after that, we're going to talk about making Christ known, which means really how do we go about taking the beauty of Reformed Orthodoxy and making it more available to more people in the broader church and to the culture that we're called to serve so that more people can benefit from the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of the freedom in Christ that we know and we've been blessed to know so well. Uh, And we'll talk about mercy ministry, the the work of the church and mercy ministry in the world. Um... In our context, that's really a lot, has a lot to do with homeless ministry because of where we are. And also about our desire as a church to be a city of refuge, meaning that Jesus, because Jesus is out looking for sinners and broken people, that, that we ought to be doing the same thing. That's who we should be looking for. So that's, uh, that's the forecast. That's the forecast. That's seven weeks are going to be about that tonight or today, this morning, <laughs> is about worship. Uh, so would you please stand? Uh, as, out of respect for the reading of God's word, we're going to read from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. This is God's inerrant word. For you have not come to what may be touched, the blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages would be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. 
For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. <coughs> Excuse me. I have, we have a, a fam, relative, one of our relatives, close relatives, family, um, a woman who is going through early onset Alzheimer's. It's super sad. She's, she's about my age. Uh, but all of a sudden, she just started to display these, these uh, you know, these, the symptoms to the point now where it's progressing to the point where she's, she's a bit older than me. She, I think she's 55 now, but within a couple of years, it's, they're guessing they're going to have to get full-time care for her. And, and you know, it's, it's sad because she doesn't, rem- you know, she even now is starting to not be able to remember who loves her. She doesn't remember where she belongs. And probably, maybe the worst part of it all um, is that she doesn't really even understand that this what's happening, which causes a lot of frustration. Uh, and I was thinking about her this week, and as I was reading through this passage, it occurred to me that that, that is somewhat of a terrifying analogy to the way that sin works on our forgetful hearts in the world. Um, as I was reading about Alzheimer's, and I had thought that it was a genetic disease, but actually that's not true. There's, there's not uh, just one genetic cause. It's a combination of environmental factors there's co- and also lifestyle choices, what you eat, your diet particularly, uh, and then there's a small part that's genetic, and in kind of in the same way, we in the world and the way sin operates on our hearts, we are in an environment, <clears throat> the world we live in, that is constantly pressing in on us to worship what it worships, to value what it values, to prioritize what it prioritizes. And there is also a lifestyle element to that. We engage in that. We are tempted we, we, and we fall into that kind of worship, uh, which then is what in the book of Hebrews, the author says, the sin that so easily ensnares us, and it so easily ensnares us because our core natures our fallen natures are so attracted and just and like magnets to that worldly worship, what the world values, what it prioritizes, uh, and what we do when we do that. Really, the sad part about it is, and the terrifying, terrifying part about it is, what that causes ultimately is a slow drift uh, away from the reality, the spiritual reality that we live in. We start to forget who God is, who loves us. We start to forget what is truly lovely and we begin to forget where we belong uh, and the terrifying thing about that slow drift uh, away, uh, that slow spiritual drift that, we, uh, that is a, you know, a real danger is that most often 
when people are in it, when we're in it, we don't even realize what's happening. And that is really what's happening in this, in, in, that's the background to that passage we just read. In the book of Hebrews, uh, it's, a, it's a book written to a group of Jewish Christians who are being pressed by the world in persecution to, to give up the worship of God and go back into and, and, and drift back into or sink back into the old Hebrew religious worship cultures or even like Roman and Greek religious cultures and the immorality that went with it constantly pressing in on them and the the author of the book of Hebrews has been just for chapters and chapters has been encouraging them and and pointing out this is what's happening to you and it's culminating here yes he encourages these people that worship is the solution to that spiritual drift that worship is a super important part of our discipleship in Christ. It's a foundational, really, necessity for us because of what it does for us, what we receive from it. Um, And so as we talk about, as we, in this sermon series, we talk about what it means to be a disciple, what's so important about those things, what's so important about uh, those foundational elements of being a disciple. Worship is, is among the top three things because of what worship does for us and worship does what worship does for us is it helps us to remember who God is it helps us to remember what God has done for us and the third thing is worship shapes us into who we really are and that's the three things we're going to look at today so first let's look at let's look at worship helps us to remember who God is Uh, you know, there's a concept called fear of the Lord. When we see the, the, the term uh, reverence or fear of the Lord in the Bible, usually we want to, um, we want to, sometimes, oftentimes that means like a reverent respect for God, but sometimes it means uh, just fear, straight up dread of something that is so big and so powerful and so terrifying that, that, it would, that it causes you to literally be overwhelmed with anxiety and dread. Or think about, think about when you, if you can think about one of the moments in your life uh, where you had great fear and dread about something that was maybe going to happen to you. Uh, I've got several like that. My, my oldest daughter, whenever she gets into some sort of trouble, Hannah, it takes at least 15 to 20 minutes to even get into the topic with her because she just cries and tries to hide her face behind pillows because she's so anxious and afraid of what kind of trouble she's in. So we have to spend like 20 minutes to calm her heart down so that we can even talk to her because she's experiencing this great anxiety and dread and fear. Now the adult version of that could be a lot of different things. Maybe you are, something from your past is coming back to haunt you and you're afraid of what that's going to mean for you and your reputation in the world. Uh, In my old life, there were several times when I was absolutely convinced that I would be dead within a few minutes and there was no way for me to get out of it. And I was overwhelmed with dread and anxiety and with fear. And so sometimes fear of the Lord, that's what it means, dread, fear, terror, 
at the concept of, so, or, or at, in the presence of something so overwhelmingly powerful and dangerous. Uh, and so listen to this. Listen to, listen to what, listen to what the apostle says, or the author of Hebrews says uh, at the beginning of this passage, talking about an instance when the Israelites came into the presence of God. It says this, uh, verses 18 through 21, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Even Moses, at the sight of God descending onto Mount Sinai, which is what that is a description of, even Moses was so terrified by it. And if you read, that's, you know, that's, a, that's a brief description of what had happened uh, in, Exodus, in Exodus when God descended onto Mount Sinai and gave the law. The picture really is, it, it's, it, I mean, if you get your mind wrapped around it, uh, there's, the, the earth is shaking in an earthquake. The mountain itself is on fire, so much so that a, like a pillar of cloud is shooting up into the air like a furnace. There's darkness and gloom throughout the land. There are sheets of rain and hail and lightning and thunder that are so loud that everybody is terrified already. And if that wasn't enough, then they heard the audible voice of God coming out of that chaos. Side note, here's an instance when in the Bible we hear, see, we see people actually hearing the audible voice of God and it, it is uh, creating terror. I see, I'm reading that and I see that picture of it's almost as if the presence of the holy God coming to earth is so powerful that the created order, the fabric of creation is being stretched and almost ripped apart by the power of his presence. And so it gives us a picture of God that we don't often look at. That God in his holiness, in his power, in his majesty, in and of himself, who he is, when we as fallen creatures behold that, it is a terrifying sight. Outside of Christ, outside of Jesus, being in the presence of God is a terrifying, terrifying and dreadful experience. We, uh, <coughs> talking about my oldest daughter... We went to the zoo once, and we saw, we went to, the, my, my daughter was maybe two, and we had taught her, you know, as you do with kids, what does the monkey say, what does the dog say, and we taught, we taught her, what does the lion say, and she would say, rawr, and she would make a claw thing, it was super cute, so we thought we'd go show her the lion. We took her to see the lion, we put, it was in the, at the San Diego Zoo where there's a chain link fence, and you stand right up against it, and the lion is, literally walks right in front of you, Right? We had no fear because the lion was behind the fence. And every time the lion walked by in front of us, Hannah would go, rawr, at the lion, which was really cute. And then one time as the lion came back, the lion posted up right in front of us 
right after Hannah said, Rawr! and lion roared. Have you, I don't know if you've ever heard a lion roar in real life. They, I mean, they say that people um, pass out in, in the natural habitat of lions. Sometimes the people fall prey to lions because when they roar, people just literally just pass out. It was the loudest, scariest noise I'd ever heard in my life. I remember looking at this lion about as big as this table thinking, there is no way all that noise is coming out of that beast. But all of a sudden, the chain link fence that was be- between us didn't really matter anymore. <laughs> Hannah like instantly filled her diaper and me and Nisa both like <laughs> were almost stunned into, into like inaction at the terror of this noise and this sound. And the thing is when we, listen, we, let me preface it, in Christ, the terror and the dread of God are not at all the final word for us, but that is still, it does not change the fact that God is powerful and dangerous and a terror and a dread. And we forget that, when we forget that as part of our understanding of who God is, we get ourselves in all kinds of trouble. The, uh, the rabbis used to have, in, in synagogues in ancient Near East, they would have a plaque above the synagogue that would say, remember before whom you stand. So people wouldn't forget about what they were coming into the presence of. What that understanding of God, or that piece of the puzzle, it gives us perspective. It decenters us. And that's a good thing because for the most part, our natural default position is to place ourselves at the center of the universe which makes us feel entitled, which makes us feel that God owes us all these things. And so then when God doesn't come through according to our plan for him, it causes us to be resentful, causes us to be angry, causes us all, it causes us to do all kinds of silly things uh, that we ought not do if we are to keep in our mind's eye the power and the majesty of God. Uh, And so that, in a Christian sense, is really what we mean by reverence. When we say reverence, uh, it still has that connotation of fear in it. But for us, it is a cultivating and an understanding of, of knowledge of who God is, how powerful he is. Uh, and that is an important component because without understanding the power of God, the danger of God, without understanding that, we will not be able to understand what he has done for us as Savior. That's the second, second part. Why is worship so important for us is that worship helps us to remember what God has done. What God has done. As we, as we seek to, we seek to be a church that evangelizes, that we are, God calls us, the primary mission of the church is to go and make disciples of all nations. And one of the things that we are up against, like a big wall that we are up against in our context of being involved in mission and, and discipleship and evangelism in the church is that, is that for a culture, um, is that grace, understanding the grace of God 
is almost meaningless to a culture that is entitled. If you believe that you deserve all good things just because of who you are, or you believe that God owes you all of these good things just because of who you are, it makes grace almost unintelligible. It makes the concept of grace almost meaningless. Uh, Another thing, another way to put it, another way to look at it, another way to look at what it is that God has done for us is that our, uh, our appreciation for something, or, or let me put it this way, if you have been rescued from danger, if you've been rescued from danger, your appreciation, it's your appreciation of the danger that really allows you to appreciate the rescue. The greater the danger you were in, the greater your appreciation for the rescue. If someone, say, uh, you know, saves you from touching a hot pan or a hot stove, you're going to be kind of grateful to that person. You're going to be say, thank you. If someone saves your child from a burning building, you're going to be much more grateful for that. If someone saves your child from a burning building and it costs them their life, you're going to even be more grateful for what they've done, right? It expands based on the level of danger. And so now, keeping in mind, let's keep in mind everything that we just learned about God and the terror and the dread of God and his power and majesty and danger and who he truly is, were we to be in front of him uh, unclothed, if we were to be before him as the fabric of reality disintegrated and we were cast into his presence without any sort of covering in and of ourselves, just us. In light of that, now let's look at what God says is actually true about us. What God says, or what our standing before him really is. Verses 22 through 24. Remember, this started by saying all those things about the law and Sinai and terror and dread, those things are not true about you. Why? Because, verse 22 You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel." And I was reading through commentaries, studying this passage. There was one quote that stuck out in my mind because I'd never thought about it in this way. It was, he said, it was like one of the commentators, William Lane, he said, he said, what's most striking here is that the angels and the people of God are no longer separated as at Sinai by signs of great terror, but they are united in one vast assembly. In other words, that we know from different parts of the Bible that when the law was given at Sinai, when God came down, he was, he was accompanied by myriad of angels, 10,000, 10,000 angels. And those angels were really on the other side of that cacophony of creation being torn apart. We were on this side, angels were on the other side. Angels were often the, the power of God's hand in destruction in the world. The angels have destroyed entire cities. Angels have destroyed entire armies arrayed against God's people. Uh, and the gap between the holy angels and us, not to even to mention the gap between us and God, 
was they were in God's presence, we were not. But in this picture, we are in one company with the angels, worshiping with God in the heavenly places. That blows my mind. Uh, But on top of that, that's not all it says. It says also, when it says, when it says, you have come to the assembly of the firstborn, that's plural. It means the firstborn ones. And that's a very, it's a very specific technical theological term. The firstborn in that culture, ancient Near Eastern culture, was the heir. The firstborn was the one who got the inheritance of the father. And so what that's saying is, everyone who comes to Mount Zion through the blood of Christ is an heir of God. Paul says the same thing in Romans, that we are co-heirs with Christ. Uh... And so this contrasting picture, it presents us as being heirs of the Father, the same status as firstborn sons, every one of us, in his presence. The third thing, spirits of the righteous made perfect. Uh, Righteous, in biblical terms, righteous doesn't mean perfect. Righteous means forgiven. Righteous means being in Christ and being right with God because what Jesus has done for us. And so it talks about us as being spirits of the righteous made perfect. And then it says that what's happening, what we're coming into is a festal gathering. The angels are all dressed up in their best angel clothes for this big party, this festal gathering. It's really another kind of technical word that means a great big party that comes after a military victory. And the military victory that's being celebrated is Christ's victory over sin and death on the cross. When Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, and the blood, it's better, his blood, his sprinkled blood is better than the blood of Abel because Abel's blood was cried out to God for vengeance and for justice And everything that's pictured at Mount Sinai as God in crushing holiness descends upon the earth. But the sprinkled blood of Jesus speaks of God's mercy, of God's forgiveness, of, of Christ winning the victory over sin and death for all of God's people. And so it's the picture... Really, it's this picture of this giant party in heaven that are all, all celebrating this amazing victory that Jesus has won over sin and death and the devil and everyone is overwhelmed with joy, overwhelmed with gratitude for what Christ has done for us. And it's a party that goes on forever. And what is that supposed to do for us? If we see if we see what our relationship with God would be without Jesus, and we get a picture of that in that first part where God descends from Mount Sinai, and we contrast that, that's the backdrop for who we are because of what Jesus has done. Seeing that contrast is what helps us to truly appreciate our salvation, right? We, listen, we are all in this culture. We can't escape it. 
and the spirit of our culture is entitlement. We are getting, that is part of what the world worships and part of the message, part of the evangelism of the world upon us every day is that you deserve the best because of who you are. And that's just kind of part of the fabric that we breathe. So even as us, as Christians in the church, we can be like, yeah, Jesus saved me. Of course he did. And so what's that? It's so helpful to us to see the reality, what our reality would be outside of that salvation and to see that what God has saved us from is the terror and wrath of his own presence so that when the day comes uh, and this world is obliterated and wiped away, what remains will be us in God's presence with no fear, with no terror, with no dread because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ and God will have transformed us into glorified bodies where we can be with him forever. And the best way to understand that is by looking at the alternative. So how does that, why do, how does that play into our worship service? Why, do we, why don't we just come in here and work right out of the gate, just start praising God and be happy and super joyful and why isn't it just a big pep rally from beginning to end because in a Christian worship service we're going through that whole story of the gospel and so we come in with a call to worship where we see and we experience and we focus on God's holiness and majesty and power and then we read the law so that we see what Sinai was what we would be subject to outside of Jesus but we don't do that to just dwell there and to stay in it we do it as background contrast so that when we immediately come to the gospel and we see who, what, what Jesus has done for us what God has done for us in Christ we will be able to appreciate it we will be able to be as grateful as we ought to be and see it for the preciousness of what it is the fullness of what it is And as sinful creatures, man, that's just hard for us to keep a grasp on. We have to do it every week. Uh, and so, purpose, understanding all that, so that our hearts would overflow with gratitude. Uh, and gratitude is the best emotion to live in. <laughs> gratitude is, is the best emotion. Gratitude is far better than happy. Gratitude, gratitude fills your heart with joy in a special way that nothing else does and helps us uh, to f- not get bogged down and under thinking that we've been entitled, but to be worshipful to God for what he's done. Uh, and so that's why we preach the gospel here every single week. We never move beyond the gospel. The gospel is not the beginning of the Christian life, and then when we get that down, we can move on to the advanced things. The gospel is the central, the center of all Christian life. And it's what we, 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 have a, we do the gospel every week in our liturgy and we preach the gospel every week in our sermon because we constantly need to be reset in that reality of what God has done for us so that we have the gratitude we ought to have so that we uh, can be disciples of Christ. The third thing, last thing, is that worship shapes us into who we really are. Uh, there's a sense in which a sense in which knowing there's a sense in which knowing who there's a sense in which knowing who you are kind of shapes you uh, for example i was I was adopted into a Polish family 
And so I was raised with this understanding and this identity of being Polish. And we did Polish things, but I always kind of knew in the back of my mind that I wasn't really Polish. And I never really kind of connected with that heritage. Uh, and then one day, one of my cousins gave me a genetic test. And I took the genetic test and I found out that I'm basically mostly British. British, Irish, and Scottish. Which automatically explained to me my love for bagpipes and fine men's clothing. Uh, <laughs> But then when I realized, you know, I thought, wow, I'm actually, I'm British. It kind of started to shape who I was. That knowledge about who I really was kind of shaped me. It changed me a little bit. Just a little, right? But it did. Knowing who you really are shapes you and who you are and, and shapes you into, into becoming more like that, right? And so uh, the same thing kind of happens, the same thing to a much larger degree happens here with worship. When we understand who we really are, that begins to shape us in that direction. And this is my, this is my favorite part about this whole passage, is that this passage is not talking about who you will be someday in the future. This is not saying when you die, you will be ushered into the heavenly assembly and you'll be worshiping with the angels. So you, so you got that to look forward to. Uh, nor is it saying that that's the world that you will belong to someday. And then the church, you know, uh, in our fallen nature, often we can really mess that up by putting conditions and thing, conditions on it by saying that's who you will be if, or that's the world you will belong to if. But what it says is not that's who you will be someday, but that's who you are now. It says that's not the, it doesn't say that's the world you will belong to someday. It says that is the world that you even now truly belong to. Even though we're walking through this evil age, our citizenship is in that world. That in a real way, a mystical way, we are already citizens of that kingdom. We already belong in that world. We are already the people described in this passage. How do we know that? The term, listen, the verb tenses are all you have come, not you will someday be. And that, that term is, really, is used for conversion. When we are converted, when we become Christians, when Christ lays hold of us it means that those things are true of us it's not that you will be firstborn and an heir of God someday you are firstborn and an heir of God now you have won a lottery that is unimaginable and you only got to wait a few years to collect uh And the world that we belong to is not this one. I mean, we're here, and this is what we see with our eyes. And the, again, the culture that we live in, the, what the culture worships tells us, what you see with your eyes is the most real thing there is. But even now, we know that that's not true. The world that we belong to is the heavenly realm, the supernatural world. And so what this is, this is saying, that's where we belong now. But it's also saying that when we engage in worship, now, right now, right now, we are in 
the company of the angels. We are in the company of the saints who have died and gone to be with the Lord before us. They are all around us worshiping God and we are in union, in unity with them through our union with Christ, worshiping God together. We can't see it. The purpose of the God's revelation, the purpose of why we should meditate on these things, the purpose why we come to worship every week is because God is, is saturating us in that reality. A world that is more real and more true than this world that we can see, that we are a part of. I remember when I first saved, right after I was saved, we, uh, at the church I was at, we had a Easter service in the big, the big uh, stadium at San Diego State, the, the sports arena at San Diego State. And I remember walking in, I, I mean, obviously this was my imagination, but I remember walking in, we were on the bottom, I was on the bottom floor, it was right in front of the stage, which was in the center, and the, and the seats went up on either side, you know, for a long ways, because we were at the bottom. And I could just, I could almost imagine and see that the roof was gone and that the seats just continued to go up into the heavens and we were surrounded by myriads and myriads of angels and glorified saints all worshiping together. I mean, I couldn't really see it, but I was brand new in, in, in the faith and just overwhelmed by the fact that God had saved me and brought me into his family. It was almost palatable. It was almost tangible. I could feel it. I could feel it. Close your eyes. Think about that. Just close your eyes and imagine where we are right now. Before God. Completely clean of the stain of sin. And his love just pouring out for us. So glad that we are there with him. All the angels with us in one company. And everything is right. And we are having a giant party to celebrate what Jesus has done for us. The emotional response that that is intended to produce is awe. We misuse that word all the time. Awesome. It's awesome. I say it all the time. (laughs) Awe is an emotional response to the full picture of the reality of who God is, what he's done for us, and who we are in Christ and where we are right now. When you get that deep in your head and deep into your heart, it produces a sense and an emotional response of awe, awesome wonder. We want to diminish worship to be entertainment which is much lower and much cheaper and so we have pep rallies in our worship services Christian worship historically Christian worship goes through this cycle comes into God's presence recognizing his holiness we come under the law to see what would become of us outside of Jesus and then we move up into joy and rejoicing as we hear the gospel and as God's word is preached to us, as Christ speaks to us through the sermon, we become into the sense of awe and wonder at God's presence and love for us. And then in the supper, 
God says this connects us in a tangible, physical way to that reality where we, the bread and the wine are, are, are physical things God has given us as mental footholds to the spiritual reality that we are participating in in Christian worship. It's so much bigger than the concept of entertainment. It is so much bigger even than even the sense of happiness or joy. Awestruck wonder. Awestruck wonder. And listen, we have to have that. We need that. Why? Because that awestruck wonder at God's presence of his revealing these things to us, who we really are, that is what shapes us into that. That's what begins to shape us into who we really are. If you believe, if you believe primarily that you are a biological accident that has no meaning in life and your value is only in that which you can produce and your happiness only in that which you can consume, that is going to shape you. That belief that worship, that liturgy is going to shape you into a very certain kind of person. But if you believe and you know uh, that you are redeemed of the living God, that you are righteous, made perfect in his sight, that you are an heir of the new creation that will never be taken away, that you belong to the supernatural world as your primary residence, that your people are the saints who are glorified in heaven. And that's your real being. That's your real purpose. That is going to shape you into a very different kind of person. That's why worship is so important for discipleship. That's why we are so intent on people coming to church every Sunday. Community groups are great. Reading your Bible is great. Listening to sermons on the radio is great. But none of those things in the same way, to the same magnitude, remind us of all of those things and, and shape us into the people of God. It's crucial, crucial that we come to worship. So, why is worship so important to discipleship? Because it helps us to remember who God is. It helps us to remember what Christ has done for us and it shapes us into who we really are so that we can have hearts overflowing with gratitude and with reverence and with awe as God's people. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Speaks to us of realities we would never even venture to guess. We thank you that through the blood of Christ we have made, been made holy and righteous in your sight. We thank you that you have promised us that we are co-heirs with Christ, that we will inherit the entire new creation, whatever that is. We thank you that you teach us about the new creation uh, in ways that let us know that we can't even comprehend how beautiful and wonderful it will be, but because it is beyond our ability to even imagine it. And we thank you, Lord, for Jesus. We thank you that he paid the penalties for our sins, that he lived the righteous life that we could never live. And that he has given us his righteousness as a covering so that in reality, we are now in your presence and that will never change, Lord. We pray that you would help us to see that, to know it, 
and that that would continually, every week, week by week, shape us into the children of God because that is who we are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.